you're the ringleader of this. We're just going to go. Okay. <laughs> Welcome, everyone, to Arch Enemies, where we talk about the greatest and sometimes not so greatest rivalries in literary history. I'm Eric Smith, and I'm here with my co-host and real-life bestie, Christopher Yuri. Hey, everybody. Today, we are joined by our very first special guest on our very first episode, Theranos Rishi. Hey! Hello, everyone. <laughs> <laughs> hey! So, Farrah, can you tell us a little bit about you and your books? Yeah. So, hi, I am Farnas Rishi. I am the author of a couple YA books, including I Hope You Get This Message and It All Comes Back to You. I'm also a voice actor. And, uh, yeah, I also live here in Philly, close to where Eric <laughs> Smith lives. And I guess, Yay, I guess neighbors. you live here too, right? I do. I do. Awesome. Yes. So in our in our very first episode with our very first guest, we'll be talking about the friendship and eventual bitter rivalry between H.G. Wells and Henry James. But before we dive in, we have to ask our guest, Mara, what's your greatest literary rivalry? <laughs> so I did some research before I came here, and I, I was really excited to answer this question because I don't know very much about different rivalries in literature. But I did discover that Mark Twain uh really hates Jane Austen which I found absolutely fascinating um I have to read this quote because it's it's ludicrous so he wrote I haven't any right to criticize books and I don't do it except when I hate them I often want to criticize Jane Austen but her books madden me so much that I can't conceal my frenzy from the reader and therefore I have to stop every time I begin Every time I read Pride and Prejudice, I want to dig her up and beat her over the skull with her own shin bone. So he really, <laughs> for whatever reason, does not like Jane Austen. And I've, I've tried to look into details about like what he does not like about her writing, and he, he refuses to show me any cards. So I, 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 think Mark, I think Mark Twain might be the first Goodreads troll. That's very possible. I could see that being in like a pamphlet that he just like passed around to people. Yeah, it's like uh, spread the spread the good word that Jane Austen's writing is is poo poo. Which how dare <laughs> how dare sir? How dare you, Mark Twain? <laughs> so before we jump in, I want to give a wholesome shout out to our senior literary researcher, Dr. Timory Schmidt, uh, for digging in and getting us so many fantastic facts about these two messy guys. Uh, we used a number of sources for this episode, including Dear Beloved Friends by Susan E. Genter and Stephen H. Job, Letters of Henry James uh, to Walter Barry, uh, The Moat in the Middle Distance by Max Bierholm, Human Rights and Public Accountability in H.G. Wells's Functional World State by John Parrington, Shieldverse and the Renegade Romantic by George Hay, H.G. Uh, Wells' Desperately Mortal, a biography by David C. Smith, and H.G. Wells' a biography by Norman and Jean McKenzie, as well as a handful of excellent articles and essays that we'll be mentioning intermittently. Now, although their works were popularized in the late 1800s to the early 1900s, their influence in pop culture, contemporary film and television is still very much seen today. Uh, from Netflix's 2020, The Haunting of Blind Manor, adapted from that? James's novella. Have you guys yeah, seen that? Yeah, it, it, it made me a little bit bored because there were no ghosts hiding in the background, like, uh, <laughs> the, like the first haunting series right, of Hill right. House. And I was Hill like, House oh, was I don't get to play Ghost Where's Waldo. <laughs> that's fair. I'm, that's I'm fair. too big of 
I'm too big of a chicken. I whenever it's a horror something, I I just read it on Wikipedia. Like I can tell you everything about the Saw movies, but I've never seen one. Ooh, that's fair. I can't watch the Saw movies either. But The Haunting of Bly Manor and Hill oh, Hill House was just art. But yeah. Yeah. Yeah, they were spectacular. Yeah. Well, those are adapted from James's novella, The Turn of the Screw, uh, which was published in 1898. And then when it comes to our buddy H.G. Wells, you know, there's War of the Worlds, the television show, which ran for three seasons on Epics. Um, I don't know a single person that watched it. Did you watch it? Nope. No? No. Nope. Did, you, did you know it existed? No, no. no I don't think anyone nope. Nope. <laughs> but these are just the recent adaptations, right? There are endless movies, television shows, radio dramas, plays, you name it, uh, including some of my favorites, like the Steven Spielberg adaptation of War in the Worlds, which is wonderful. Uh, the underrated and admittedly very bad Guy Pierce version of the Time Machine, um, the brilliant and terrifying Elizabeth Moss version of the uh, of the Elizabeth Man of the Invisible Man. Honestly, in my Guy Pierce extended universe, the Time Machine and the Lockout exist in the same shared universe. <laughs> uh, I, I, it would just make me so happy. I I agree. Lockout is like him trying to be Arnold Schwarzenegger in space. Oh yeah, it's and... it's Escape from oh, Space. God. He's just playing Snake <laughs> from Escape from New York. Farrah, I highly recommend it if you haven't seen that one. I'm, I'm um, taking notes. You know, it's in some of their lesser works, or at least their lesser known today and not top of mind books, that the crumbling of this friendship and this bitter rivalry between these two literary titans can be found. Have you heard of the novel Boone? Do you know who Rebecca West is? Probably not, uh, but they're key to the story here of how these two writers, who started off as genuine friends and even fans of each other, uh, had a spectacular falling out to the point one of them was written into one of their books. But first, just a little bit of background. Let's talk about H.G. Wells before we dig into Henry James and, and how they fell apart. So H.G. Wells was an English author of over 50 novels and scores of short stories. I know. <laughs> And he also wrote a lot of nonfiction, um, but is known for being the father of science fiction. His work predicted aircraft, tanks, space travel, nuclear weapons, satellite television, uh, and even something close to what would one day become the internet. Uh, he wrote about time travel, aliens, visibility, uh, biological engineering, before most of that was even remotely common in the genre. If he was the father of science fiction, who was the mother? <laughs> Who's the stepdad? I need a I need a full genealogy here. <laughs> I need to understand where all of this came from. Vera, do you have any ideas? Cousin. Who's the cousin, the weird cousin that isn't allowed at the dinner parties anymore? That's what I want to know. I know, right? <laughs> the cousin of science fiction. I love it. I mean, I would argue the mother of science fiction is uh, is Mary Shelley. Oh, I was going to say Ursula Le Guin, but Mary Shelley's a good one. Oh, but this isn't a grace over his nonfiction work, right? So he wrote a lot about equality and human rights, uh, most notably the rights of man in 1940, which actually laid the groundwork for the 1948 Universal Declaration of Human Rights, which was adopted by the United Nations shortly after his death. He was nominated for the Nobel Prize four times, uh, but never won. He was so influential that he would one day travel to Russia, build up a rapport with Stalin, and attempt to convince him to give writers freedom of expression. Uh, didn't work, but that's what a big deal uh, he would go on to become. Born in Bromley, Kent, England in September of 1866 to a family of former servants who had worked their way out of domestic servitude and into owning their own shop, despite owning their business 
him and his family did not do terribly well, constantly on the verge of poverty. And speaking to the Times uh, and how well athletes were paid, his father, Joseph Wells, was a professional cricket player for Kent County. I read that Joseph was the first cricket player in history to take, and I'll quote it here, four wickets in four balls in a four first-class cricket match. What does that mean? That's, um, I don't know. I don't what know. What does that mean? I don't know. I, I think I got it. I think he's got a home run, a touchdown, and a goal, all while drinking tea while riding on a horseback. <laughs> Maybe I don't know how cricket works. It's, I mean, it sounds about right. <laughs> I would watch cricket right. all the time if this was true. <laughs> there, there's actually a really interesting article from Jonathan Rice, never a famous cricketer on ESPN's news website that is dedicated to cricket, where he points out a bundle of surprising facts about the literary world in cricket, uh, including how P.G. Wodehouse, A.A. Malin, and Sir Arthur Conan Doyle played cricket, uh, and even name some of their beloved and celebrated characters after cricket teammates who died in the war. Well, does that, we're we talking like Winnie the Pooh universe? <laughs> we are, we are talking about the Winnie the Pooh universe. The Poohiverse. I need to know someone's named after a cricket player. So supposedly Eeyore was a person who played cricket alongside Malin, uh, but the actual identity is lost to time. We don't know who, what the, what the first name was, the last name was, but Eeyore's based on a cricket player. Huh. Huh. <laughs> I'm guessing maybe not a good cricket player because he's kind of sad all the time. Oh, just one cricketer standing on the pitch, just, just, mm. oh, 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 maybe I'll, maybe I'll throw it at the wickets. It's okay. <laughs> and, you know, and when it comes to Wodehouse, you know, a man named Percy Jeeves, who became the famous butler in all of his novels to the point that Jeeves is a name associated with butlering, uh, is a person that he played cricket with. So I don't know. I wonder how he would feel that he is forever remembered as a as a butler and a, and a, a dead search engine. And and Farrah, this ties into your your early uh, quip about Mark Twain. Uh, one of the first cricket players H.G. Wells' father struck out was the great nephew of Jane Austen. Hey, she's everywhere. I love it. Mark Twain would have something to say here. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, however, a life of athletics really wasn't in the picture for Wells, uh, who was affectionately called Birdie by his family. Uh, I feel like the name Birdie effectively ends your career as an athlete. You know, I feel like it's just not an athlete's name. Yeah, but it's like a, a 1930s athlete's name. So like if you Google famous baseball stars in the 1930s, you get names like Archie Vaughn, Heine Manush, Lefty Grove. <laughs> More people need to be named Lefty. Lefty's so good. Goose Goslin, which... <laughs> I feel like is definitely Ryan Gosling's like ancestor somewhere. They just added a, a G at the end. I'm obsessed. <laughs> I feel like I feel like you're legitimately just making up names right now. I feel like if we put some old timey music on from like the 30s and rattle off those names, they'll they'll make even more sense. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Bertie Wells makes up makes way more sense in the context of old timey music. What about, what about the other names? Because here, give us the other names you just gave us. The other names were Archie Vaughn, Heine Manush, Lefty Grove, and Goose Gosling. <laughs> oh, goodness. All right, that is perfect. I do suppose Bertie Wells sounds like the name of a 30s baseball player or cricket player, whatever. So, Bertie breaks his leg at the age of eight and is bedridden, so his father brings him all the books he wants from the nearby library. 
Uh, and this time in his life is largely what inspired him to one day become a writer. This is uh, what is known as a defining injury for him, something that we'll see reflected in Henry James's life, uh, as well as a number of other writers we will cover uh, over the course of this show. He enters school when his father's cricket career is cut tragically short when he breaks his thigh, uh, and they end up going pretty broke. All the kids who are now a bit older, our boy Bertie is 14, become apprentices for various trades. Bertie ends up working as a draper. This is getting very Dickensian. <laughs> I, I feel like his father becomes a writer because he's laid up in bed, covered in soot, asking for tuppence. All old-timey England looks like Dickens to me. His mother finds work uh, as a lady's maid, uh, and the home has this just massive, sprawling library where his mother's working. Um, and this is where Bertie drives into classics once again. Daniel Defoe becomes a big influence on him, who's the author of Robinson Crusoe, uh, which I think is pretty clear when you read any of Wells' sci-fi adventures. Uh, Mary Shelley's Frankenstein has a big effect on him. Again, mother of science fiction. Eventually, Bertie gets himself out of the estate where his mother is a maid and into a space where he can pursue teaching. Uh, he becomes a grammar school teacher and continues to read voraciously. Uh, see, that's one of the big things about Wells that's so fascinating is how much of his education uh, is the result of him educating himself uh, and immersing himself in what books he could get his hands on. So he was a bit of an autodidact. Exactly. Which is my 25 cent word for the day. <laughs> <laughs> So, so he wins a scholarship, uh, he goes to college, being around academics and the result of his upbringing as a working class kid, an actual member of the working class, just opens his eyes to politics and the social status of people around him. Studies with Thomas Henry Huxley, uh, who's widely known as quote unquote Darwin's bulldog. Uh, and while he gets a stipend, uh, he describes his time being extremely poor and unable to afford stu food while he's a student. If this sounds familiar, it should. This is the mid to late 1800s and things are still the same right now. See, Dickens. Dickens. It is very, everything's Dickensian. <laughs> So he, so he joins the debating society, starts the science school journal with some other kids, uh, and it's here that he tries his hand at writing sci-fi. Oh, well, no. Sorry about Hello? that. <laughs> oh I think we had a dog off. join in. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Your dog's barking because it wants a tuppence. It's heard all of this Dickens talk, and it's like, please feed me. Please, sir, feed me. He loves Dickens. Oh my goodness. So <laughs> I'm I am keeping that in this. So uh Bertie isn't just growing as a future writer, uh, because it's during this time he writes and publishes a short story that will be the precursor to the time machine. Uh, but he's also growing as an intellectual. But when he leaves college and he leaves this sort of poverty-stricken uh, life of writing and studying, uh, he becomes a bit aimless. Uh, he moves in with his aunt, he starts writing for a local paper, publishing humor and essays. And it's here, uh, in the space of creative freedom, where he finally isn't stressed about money and is falling in love with his cousin, that he writes The Time Machine. Hold on a second. Rewind. What was that again? <laughs> in love with what? Who? Okay. okay. Let, 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 let. So it's during his time with his wife cousin uh, that he begins to enter the most prolific writing period of his life. He splits with his wife in 1894, where he falls for a student of his, uh, who he then later oh. marries. Oh, good. Uh, At least they're not related this time. Yeah, yeah. So we spent 18 months of in Surrey where he's prolific. He plans and writes The War of the Worlds. He finishes The Time Machine, which ends up being his first book. Uh, he writes The Island of Dr. Moreau. Uh, he publishes The Wonderful Visit and The Wheels of Chance. Uh, he begins writing two other books, uh, When the Sleeper Wakes uh, and Love and Mr. Lewisham. Are you just going to... 
It, like part of this, it sounds to me like you're trying to say it's okay that he married his cousin because it helped him write his most popular books. Is that the message you're trying to get across? <laughs> also, I want to bring up the Island of Dr. Moreau movie is incredible. If you haven't seen it, go watch it. It is Marlon Brando's most spectacular performance as a basically melting blob of human. Yeah, no, he he does he does seem to be melting throughout that entire movie. But like, Chris, those are some those are some good books, you know. Like, yeah, um, I don't want to unpack this right now. It could be worse. No. He could be like Edgar Allan Poe. That's very true. Wow. See, this seems to be like a common thing with mm. some of these writers. <laughs> yeah. yeah a little too common for very, making. Very special episode about, about this at some point. So <laughs> now that I feel icky, let's move on. Yes. Yeah, so <laughs> so things, go, things go really well for Birdie after this, though he cheats on his wife a lot. They have two kids, uh, but she dies at 55, leaving him totally devastated. He was also known for his many affairs with women, I should add, uh, including uh, with birth control advocate and Planned Parenthood founder, uh, Margaret Sanger. Oh, okay. Later in life, he's partnered for a decade with Dutch adventurer Odette Kuhn, who he starts uh, dating when she was 22 years old, and he was in his 60s. So um, back to, like... Adventurer has this romantic connotation to it when it really was just a bunch of Europeans traipsing through other people's countries. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's no, that's exactly. So so our boy Birdie, he's just he is not the greatest when it comes to women in relationships. That's that is for certain. Um, but let's go back a little bit. Let's go back to the time machine. So with the time machine and his launch into sci-fi. Uh, he renders his works convincing by instilling something he called Wells' Law, which I think is just a little bit of fascinating writing feedback for any of our would-be authors who are listening in. Uh, he explains that while writing The Time Machine, he realized that the more impossible story I had to tell, the more ordinary must be the setting. However, it's during this time of grief and, and essentially sleeping about everywhere uh, that we start to see some more glimmers of that spiteful bit of his personality start to bubble up. Uh, he mocks his detractors in his novels, uh, most notably in the 1911 book, uh, The New Machiavelli. Uh, but it's in 1915 that we touch on a novel that shatters a friendship. His literary satire, Boone, is published. And one of the main characters is a fictionalized version of Henry James. And this is where we insert, like, the knives flashing sound effect. <laughs> yes. And this is when it really starts happening. <laughs> now, Henry James isn't as exciting to me as someone like H.G. Wells. I mean, he has two first names. He can't be that interesting. <laughs> but, also but exciting. That's, that's Also, that's mean. People that have two first names are double the fun. Yes, there you go. <laughs> but uh, but let's talk a little bit about him so you understand the man as we build up to discussing uh, this falling out. So Henry James is regarded as a, as a transitional figure between literary realism and literary modernism, thought to be one of the greatest novelists in the English language. He's best known for his novels dealing with social and marital interplay uh, between emigrant Americans, English people, and continental Europeans. What was that word again? I'm just, I'm just going to keep going over that one. Okay, cool. <laughs> it's a word that has lots of accents on there's, it. There's a lot of <laughs> accents there, and then... Our, our head researcher, Tim Marie Schmidt, put that in there, and I, I'm not sure what it is. <laughs> okay, moving on. So his bangers include uh, The Portrait of a Lady, uh, The Ambassadors, The Wings of the Doug, Doug, The Wings of the Doug. <laughs> I want that version. Where's that version? Oh, I can't. Um, it's got to be in public domain now, so you can rewrite it. Oh, my God. The Wings <laughs> of the Doug. 
<laughs> and turn... Oh, it's, I got it. It's about someone who's a knight at medieval times named Doug. Oh, perfect. I love this. Oh, oh my God. Doug. I'm, I, God, I have to leave that in here now, don't I? Okay. And, uh, <laughs> and Turn of the Screw, a ghost story novella that has been adapted in film and TV about 30 times. Like Birdie, he's also nominated for the Nobel Prize multiple times. Three, uh, but he never wins. Born in New York City in April of uh, 1843, his means were significantly different than our boy Birdie. Henry's grandfather had come from enormous wealth, having pulled together a fortune of about a million dollars after moving to America in the late 1700s. In today's money, a million dollars is uh, $23 million, which almost makes it feel like money's not real. I mean, it's not. <laughs> uh, his father would go on to become a philosopher, uh, a member of the new church, and his mother also came from a wealthy family. Uh, while Bertie's childhood was one marred with poverty and labor and social hierarchies that felt nearly impossible to escape, Henry James lived the life that benefited off of those social hierarchies. Much of his youth was spent traveling and living in new places, from a cottage in the UK to just jet-setting off to wherever his father's interests pushed them. He lived in London, Paris, Geneva, Newport, Rhode Island. Ah, oh, the exotic land of Rhode Island. <laughs> <laughs> so it, it, it sounds to me like he was kind of like if Instagram existed then, he might be a, like a trust fund influencer. I mean, oh, yeah. absolutely. Like $23 million fortune, zipping around everywhere, just living with his dad. And yeah, no, 100%. And it was in his travels, in these travels of being a, a 1800s influencer that, uh, uh, let's see, he's in France as a young kid where he learns French and is introduced to the words of Balzac. <laughs> Chris, don't, don't, neither of you don't. Okay. I'm not touching that one. All right, this one's all yours. <laughs> I got you. <laughs> never not funny. So, never not funny. <laughs> we're adults. Yeah. So, oh my God. So he receives a haphazard and mixed education, uh, not the Latin Greek classics. And much like our boy Bertie, he also had a life-defining injury uh, that would keep him putting pen to paper and his face in books. And uh, a oh, oh my God! And then there's a um, there's a fire that that gives him a lifelong injury that keeps him from Civil War service. So remember, where Bertie was English, James lived here in America. So it, it is it is not a great time over here. So it's kind of like this rivalry here is kind of like British versus America. One, like round two, like Revolutionary War round two, but this time instead of muskets, it's pens. <laughs> I mean, it really is. And and it's it's a rivalry surrounding class too, right? Like all that wealth over in the UK. And and I mean, none of that wealth over in the UK because it's the Dickensian <laughs> right. uh, nightmare that You're Chris just was talking a about. Foot covered child <laughs> versus a jet setting Rhode Island boy just yes just dripping in caviar like he is he is doing fine <laughs> so his haphazard route through education doesn't end in his childhood uh he enrolls in harvard uh where he goes to scientific school then med school then law school and then he quits he quits all of this he didn't want to be a lawyer didn't want to be a doctor didn't want to do any of these things um okay. must be nice to be able to just quit med school and quit law school and do whatever you want I'm going to do whatever I want, Dad. I'm going to be an influencer. The first one ever. What year is it? 1870? <laughs> I'll, I'll send out homing pigeons yeah. with my pictures. Trailblazer. <laughs> Wait, Farrah, weren't you a lawyer for a little bit before you uh, before you got into writing? Uh, yeah, I, I did it. And then I was like, dang, 
I too would rather be a writer because the lawyering is not fun. So that's what happened. Yes, but then, and then you jet set it off with the twenty-three million dollars. And then I jet set it right? off. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. No, I yes. immediately got twenty-three million dollars. That's what happened. <laughs> yeah, look it up. So, so Henry James becomes interested in literature. Uh, he starts hanging around fancy literary folks. In fact, future SCOTUS member Oliver Wendell Holmes is, is one of his buddies. Uh, and this fancy networking thing becomes a big part of his life. Oliver Wendell Holmes' father, Oliver Wendell Holmes, was a celebrated poet who ran around with people like Ralph Walter Emerson and Henry Wadsworth Longfellow, who we will talk about in another episode for sure. But it's actually kind of sad here because Henry James's career would eventually flourish. Uh, he does well, but he is so obsessed with being around the right people uh, that I have to wonder if he ever really enjoyed it, right? He wanted to be seen as a success. It wasn't enough to just be one. And this was his sort of particular way as navigating the world as an artist. It's one of the things that does eventually lead to his clash with Wells. So he's basically clout chasing. Clout chasing. Yeah, absolutely. Like he's... <laughs> He's not going to feel good about himself unless everyone else thinks he's amazing, right? Um, I don't know. It's the kind of thing my therapist would be like, ah, that's this. Let's unpack this, Eric, which she does quite often. Uh, <laughs> so, so James's first publication was a review of a stage production in 1863, then an anonymous short story called A Tragedy of Error a year later. He writes fiction and nonfiction for magazines. Uh, his first novel comes out in... When is his first novel? Uh, 1871. It's called Watch and Ward. During this time, he's living in New York and also living in Europe, uh, but his career isn't really taking off the way he wants it to. Um, not that it matters, right? He has all that family money, but he wants to be seen. James struggles a lot with this kind of success, right? He, he He's writing these novels that are serialized works, and the audience was mostly like middle-class women, which he was not a fan of. Uh, he struggled to fashion... Yes. <laughs> he struggles to <laughs> he struggles to fashion serious literary work within the structures that are imposed by the editors and publishers of, of what they think is suitable for young women to read. He lived in rented rooms, but was able to join gentlemen's clubs that had libraries where he could entertain. Now, for those of you who might be unfamiliar with what a serialized novel or serial fiction is, uh, it's something that's still popular today, uh, a continued tradition through sci-fi magazines uh, and reading apps. Uh, it's when sections of a larger work, like a novella or an entire novel, are published in pieces in newspapers, magazines, and the like, and eventually are bound together in a proper book. You could probably lump comic books in there somewhere as well, just oh, kind of yes. little pieces of a larger story. 100%. You get those trade mag you get those trade uh, books at the end of a, a comic story run, totally. Popular authors who made this format a massive hit in the 1800s include people like James, but also Chris's boy, Charles Dickens, uh, Wilkie Collins, Herman Melville, who I cannot wait to talk about Melville at one point, uh, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. Uh, in France, Alexandre Ma was a massive part of this movement, publishing pieces such as uh, Fluitions in French newspapers. Uh, in fact, The Count of Monte Cristo was published over the span of 139 installments. Was he getting paid by the word? I think you did get paid by the word back then. Because I know Dickens did. Dickens and that's did. part of the reason why a lot of novels back then are very long, because they were broke and yeah. they needed money. So more words on the page. More words on the page. Yeah. Can, can you imagine yeah. missing one installment, though? Like, you miss one installment, like installment number 109 because of, like, the war. And, and you're just, <laughs> just super upset about it. 
I didn't get my special edition <laughs> issue. <laughs> So in 1871, he's starting to see glimmers of success, but it's in 1878 that the book Daisy Miller uh, establishes fame on both sides of the Atlantic. Uh, I drew notice perhaps because uh, it depicted a woman whose behavior is outside the social norms of Europe. Oh, heavens. <laughs> he also begins to write his, his what I would argue is his masterpiece, uh, The Portrait of a Lady, which is published in 1881. So he starts to travel and mingle with the literary greats of his time. Uh, he goes to Europe for over a year. He spends time with the likes of Dickens and George Eliot. Uh, he returns after years abroad and writes the transatlantic sketches, A Passionate Pilgrim. I don't know, a Passionate Pilgrim huh. sounds like a like a fun new adult title. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> that is definitely a book I've seen in the romance section of Barnes and Noble. It's got Fabio on the cover and he's got like a little buckle on his hat <laughs> and there's turkeys around him. I don't know where this is going. Get me out of this joke as quickly as possible. Listen, I see it. I can see it. He also writes uh, Roderick Hudson, uh, and then it all falls apart. Between 1884 and 1887, he's inspired by French realism, which arguably killed the success of his early career. He continues to be the guy who networked with big names, uh, who tried writing for theater, and he gets depressed and potentially suicidal after one of his friends dies. Uh, he moves back to the U.S. for a time, uh, and that's when he writes one of his biggest bangers at the turn of the century, The Turn of the Screw. Uh, his work is often divided into three eras, the second one, uh, this one here, being the most successful. Uh, this is the era where we see him write The Wings of the Dove. Dove. The, <laughs> the Wings of the Dove, God damn it. Uh, the Ambassadors. <laughs> and The Golden Bowl, uh, which are published in like 1902, 1903, 1904. Dang. You know, and, and that level of prolificness is really fascinating to me as someone who, you know, Farrah, you write a lot of books too, but like, like four, three books like that, one after another, whose word counts are just like 400 pages. Like I cannot fathom. Yeah. After I would pop out something like Turn of the Screw, I'm done. I'm retired. That's it. I'm out. Yeah. Yeah. Everyone's aiming for that one hit wonder. Right. Yeah. Get, the, get those Netflix royalties in, in the year 1915. Let's, let's go. Again, mm -hmm. Netflix delivered by Pigeon. <laughs> <laughs> so he would go on to spend the next 10 years writing uh, autobiographies, actually, lecturing on Balzac. <laughs> and, <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> oh my God. I'm right there with you, Farrah. Oh, my God. <laughs> keep this joke rolling. And then publishing uh, something called The American Scene, which is a collection of his travel writing. And this is the year... It goes down. The year 1915, and H.G. Wells decides to roast him. Yes. Can we add like a little sizzle sound effect here? Oh, like yes, absolutely. That'd be great. <laughs> um, but yeah, this is where we're getting into the, the meat of things. Absolutely. Oh my God, Chris. Absolutely. So these two writers, they had a lot in common, despite the fact that they grew up wildly different. Uh, both their lives were significantly impacted by childhood injury. They were both champions of free speech. They had strong political views. They wrote incisive social commentary. They were both nominated for the Nobel Prize several times, but never won. They were highly influential people that were passionate about social justice. But, you know, even the most well-meaning people can harbor resentment that's spectacularly petty, uh, seemingly for no reason. So when Wells first emerges onto the literary scene, James is intrigued by this young writer's talent. Uh, I don't know if we 
really talked about this or you saw the dates there, but you know, James is older than our boy Birdie uh, by a lot. So by 1915, when the two of them come at odds, uh, Wells is only 49 years old and James is 72. Uh, and remember this because it's it's fairly important. So it's going to be like when they're going to eventually have their actual all-out deathmatch battle, it's going to be 49-year-old Wells with a cane and 72-year-old James with a walker. Exactly, exactly. Okay. It, is, it is not evenly matched. So at one point, James declares his admiration directly regarding Wells' work. He says, you are, for me, the most interesting literary man of your generation. In fact, the only interesting one. Aww. Can you imagine? Yeah, it's so sweet. Can you imagine getting that kind of praise from someone who isn't just a peer, uh, but something of a literary titan in your community? Like, that's a very sweet sentiment. And for someone like James, who networking and having connections and amassing literary friends, it, it, something is so wildly important to him, uh, him extending that kind of praise, the kind he so desperately craved from other people, it feels like a big deal, right? It feels like a step. Like he's looking inwardly at himself and how he would like to be treated, how his therapist has talked to him <laughs> about not gaining external validation and putting his value on that. So he's extending himself out to H.G. Wells. Yes, it's beautiful. And, and how do we go from that to a snub so large? It is literally the size of a book. So when it comes to their approaches to the literary world, James was preoccupied with art, while Wells was trained in biology and considered himself first and foremost a journalist, actually. Uh, he measured writing by its usefulness in the service of truth. So they're writing, they're, they're differing aesthetic doctrines, with Wells arguing for new realism that engaged uh, in social development and all those aspects, while James argued that an approach like this was a quote-unquote prostitution of art, was building to what would, I know. That's some harsh words. <laughs> Very harsh words. Um, it's building to what will inevitably have some kind of collision with these two bookish giants. Wells believed that uh, art is meant to push society forward and contribute to social development. And James, it, for him, it was just art. You know, this is art. It's meant to inspire people. So there's, there's the thought that uh, in addition to this drama, these two had more of a direct falling out uh, and less of a falling out surrounded by personal ideas regarding capitalism. So in Norman and Jeannie McKenzie's excellent biography on H.G. Wells, there's a theory that Wells resented James and his literary friends for refusing to review Rebecca West's book about him in the Times Literary Supplement. So was their conflict brought up as a result of difference in ideals or by something as wildly petty as denying a book review. Whatever the case, H.G. Uh, Wells's book, Boone, would be published in 1915, and a year-long beef would begin. Uh, and I need to stress that year-long bit, because you're going to find out why in a minute. Now, also, <laughs> I should add, and, and Chris, maybe at one point we'll do like a, a, a recap of H.G. Wells and and basically H.G. Wells versus the world, because he he fought with so many people. But this is something of his most notable one. But it sounds yeah. like we're going to have to have an episode with H.G. Wells, Mark Twain. Uh, oh, Ernest Hemingway. Oh, Hemingway, of course, yeah. And Doug. <laughs> and Doug. Doug. Doug, of course. Hemingway especially, because we have to do an episode on Hemingway versus animals, just yes. in general. And also... It doesn't have to be other writers. It's just him versus every animal that he wanted to shoot. Yes, and also yeah. all of Farrah's beefs. Don't, we can't forget this. Mm, Farrah's beefs. Oh, yeah. Farrah's just, you know, 
out on these streets, call, oh, causing yeah. trouble. I'm, I'm looking. I'm looking for a fight. Yeah, it's true. <laughs> I really think you might have like a, a solid beef with Mark Twain. I do, I do, and Hemingway for sure. But that's because Hemingway <laughs> yeah, no. just wants to fight literally everything that moves, and I'm, I'm, I'm for it. Let's do it. <laughs> yeah, you're you're like I am. I am a person. I move around. Therefore, Hemingway wants to fight me. I'm gonna fight back. Yeah, there we go. Yeah, yeah. So that's gonna be my next vacation: going to Hemingway's grave, and being like, "Fight me, you coward!" <laughs> <laughs> oh goodness. So a couple more of H.G. Wells's uh, sort of mini beefs, if you will. Those so, are called sliders at the bar. <laughs> mini beefs. They, they are called <laughs> sliders. That's it. I think. I think those will be Pack our mini up. episodes, Chris. Our mini episodes will be called sliders. And we'll talk about the small beefs that we find. So in in M.P. Shields' short story, uh, The Primate of Rose, which was published in 1928, there's an unpleasant womanizer named E.P. Crooks, who is a parody of Wells. Our buddy Bertie had come after Shields' Prince Zelinsky when it was published in 1895, uh, and this was her response. Uh, they had gotten along for years, praising one another, but the beef battle that Bertie would have in 1915 uh, is much bigger. Can we revisit that you just said beef battle? Beef and that battle. makes me so happy. <laughs> now, I think we might have to rename the podcast. Now. It is <laughs> now <battles>. beef battle. <laughs> C.S. Lewis's The Hideous Strength, published in 1945, the character of Jules is a caricature of Wells. Much of Lewis's work was also written under the influence of Wells uh, as an in antithesis to, or as Lewis put it, an exorcism of the influence the work had on him, which that's, that's, can you imagine telling another writer like, oh, my work is trying to, it's an exorcism of the influence you've had on my writing. That, that, uh, I don't know, feels pretty good. myself all the time. <laughs> <laughs> to be honest, there's quite a few books, which I wish I could exercise out of my brain. <laughs> I might need holy water for that. <laughs> But we will dig into uh, Lewis in a future episode, that's for sure. He is quite the character. So published in 1915, Wells's satirical novel Boone is published under the name Reginald Bliss and parodies Henry James's writing, uh, creates a caricature of him. Uh, in Norman and Jean McKenzie's biography of Wells, they dig into it, explaining how Wells initially denied he even wrote it. He would say, well, Bliss is Bliss and Wells is Wells, and Bliss can write all sorts of things that Wells could not do. This is like a famous musician who has an alter ego, like like Garth Brooks saying Chris Gaines is another person. When was the last time you even listened to music? I, I am aware of, of, of popular music. I mean, just recently I went to go, um, you know what, let's, let's continue. We'll, we'll, we'll keep going here. <laughs> <laughs> Are we, we're not going to talk about the Counting Crows concert you went to? <laughs> <laughs> Just keep digging that hole. That's that's it. <laughs> so when, so, oh my god, we're we're talking about these guys roasting each other, not us. Yeah, but I'm here to roast you a little bit. That's true. That's true. Little beefs. Uh, little beefs. So so when Boone opens up, Wells has an introduction to it, calling it an indiscreet, ill-advised book. Because remember, Wells isn't the same person as the character writing the book, according to him. Chapter four of Boone is largely a frontal assault on Henry James's late manner and contains long pastiches of his style, depicting a paragraph of his as a hippopotamus trying to pick up a pea in a corner, a, character, a caricature crowned with the accusation that James never discovered that a novel isn't a picture, that life isn't a studio. Again, here's H.G. Wells roasting him for believing that writing is art as opposed to a, a, a pursuit that's meant to be a, a little more capitalist. This is kind of like a strange disagreement to me because 
I feel like writing and art can be both. Yes. It, it doesn't yeah. have to be one of these things. Like there's more than one book in the world and there's more than one way to write. Why can't you have the like very specific and searching for truth of H.G. Wells and then the beautiful lyricism and um, flowingness of H., uh, Henry James? No, right. absolutely. <laughs> like it can exist both ways. Uh, and frankly, to be a writer today, I, I think you need to focus on both of those things, right? Yeah. Well, like what like what what style do you prefer today? Like if you were gonna wade into this beef, what what would you prefer? Which would you lean toward HG Wells or uh Henry James? Oh boy. I mean, I I think I would it's gonna sound terrible, but I feel like I would maybe lean more into HG Wells. Yeah. And and thinking of the sort of capitalist approach because I've I've I work in publishing and I've had so many books come out. Now I, I kind of think of it in that that sort of way. Oh, that's kind of depressing. <laughs> <laughs> what about you, Farah? That's such a good question. I don't know. I mean, I think both are equally important, right? And and in a way, after I read a book that has that Wells feel to it, then I want to pick up a James book to just, you know, sometimes you need something for your brain and something sometimes you need something for your heart. And I think both are are good, right? I, I appreciate yeah, writing the James stuff. Like, I I mean, I love a good romance book, which I know Mark Twain would hit me over the head with a shin bone for saying. <laughs> but, but I mean, both both are important. Yeah, like, I think, I honestly think they're not at odds with each other. They might be actually closer to each other than might be. Like, you can use mm. beautiful language and art to drive at something that might be truth. Yeah. So I think... So it's, it's very strange to me that they're having this much of a disagreement, which brings us back to the other reason why they might have had a beef, which is the um, the book review. Oh, yes. No, the book review is a is a huge problem. I think that's probably the real reason here. Yes. <laughs> but really quick back to Boone. Uh, so Henry James is, is actually kind of amused at first, uh, but, you know, still still offended by Boone. Uh, and they end up exchanging a bunch of letters. There's definitely a vibe that he felt betrayed uh, after having supported Wells so early on. He says, um, uh, in his memoir, James argues that the artist is ultimately beholden uh, only to his own measure of fullness, quote unquote, fullness of life and the projection of it, which seems uh, to you, Wells, an emptiness of both. Damn, that's a really uh, good <laughs> <laughs> such a good burn. It's a terrible burn, but it's also a kind of really good. <laughs> so Wells responds, and you can actually read all these letters, by the way, over on Laprum's Quarterly. Wells says, to you, literature like a painting is an end. To me, literature like architecture is a means. It has a use. Your view was, I felt, altogether too prominent in the world of criticism, uh, and I assailed it in the lines of harsh antagonism. And writing that stuff about you was the first escape I had from the obsession of this war. Boone is just a waste paper basket. Some of it was written before I left my home at Sandgate, and it was while I was turning over some old papers that I came upon it, found an expressive, and went on with it last December. I had, a rather, I had rather be called a journalist than an artist. That is the essence of it, and there was no other antagonist possible other than yourself. But since it was printed, I have regretted a hundred times that I did not express our profound and incurable contrast with a better grace. Uh-oh, somebody nice. threw down the gauntlet. So he throws down, but he also offers up the most non-apology I have ever seen. He goes on and on about like, oh, this book, it was just, it was just something I found in the garbage. And I could think of no better villain than you, but I kind of regret that we didn't 
talk about this a little bit. So it was a very big sorry, not sorry. Yes, 100%. And this sets James off. He reminds his now former friend what he had done for him. He says, my dear Wells, I am bound to tell you that I don't think your letter makes out any sort of case for the bad manners of Boone as far as your indulgence in them at the expense uh, of your poor old uh, H.J. is concerned. I say your simply because he has been yours in the most literal, continual, sacrificial, and most admiring and abounding critical way ever since he began to know your writings, as to which you have had copious testimony." That's such a sad statement, mm -hmm. right? Like, I have been yours. I've supported you. I've sacrificed for you. He also adds, your comparison of a book to a wastebasket strikes me as the reverse of felicitous. Uh, of felicitous ah. Your comparison of the book to a wastebasket strikes me as the reverse of felicitous, uh, for which one throws into that receptacle is exactly what one doesn't commit too publicly, uh, and make the affirmation of one's estimate of one's contemporaries by. I should liken it to much rather the... Pre <laughs> this is so messed up. I should liken it much rather to the preservative portfolio or drawer in which what is withheld from the basket is savingly laid away. So he's saying it's, un it's completely unfair that you're calling this garbage, because the stuff that we think of as garbage, we leave in a drawer somewhere. We all have those trunked novels. If Farrah has one, I want to stage a heist so we can get it though, because everything <laughs> Farrah writes is wonderful. Can I be the safe cracker? Yes. Okay, great. <laughs> <laughs> and finally, James says, it is art that makes life, makes interest, makes importance for our consideration and application of these things. And I know no substitute whatever for the force and beauty of its process. If I were Boone, I should say that any pre pretense of such of a substitute is helpless and hopeless humbug, but I wouldn't be oh, Boone man. for the world. <laughs> humbug, that's so great. Hopeless Perfect. and hopeless humbug. <laughs> but I wouldn't be Boone for the world, and I am only yours faithfully, Henry James. That's spoken like someone who definitely didn't have to worry about food and didn't work up a chimney <laughs> like H.T. Wells. Again, Dickens is definitely <laughs> hungry, covered in soot, working up chimneys. Didn't work up a chimney. <laughs> oh, goodness. Now, I wish I had more here, uh, more of the fallout, more of them to maybe getting back together and squashing this beef. But Henry James dies in 1916. Yeah, he gave up. He gave up. The beef starts in 1915, the year the book is published. We have these very gracious letters from Henry James saying like, hey, I wish you hadn't done this. I've done so much for you. Uh, I still care about you. And he dies in 1916. Did H.G. Wells coming for his old friend actually kill him? Yes. Um, it was a paper cut <laughs> that took him out finally from one of Wells's letters. I mean, it's hard not to speculate, right? Like Henry James dies at the age of 73, which is a good one for anyone these days. Never mind the early 1900s. He he passes away in 1916. Bertie doesn't pass away until 1946. His final years are spent seeing all kinds of new success. The radio teleplay of War of the Worlds uh, that creates a mass panic in the streets happens in 1938 uh, to those trips to Russia where he argues for freedom of speech for writers. Do you think he would have really enjoyed Tom Cruise running? in the world of world <laughs> like he would he would appreciate how fast tom cruise can run hmm. i think so tom cruise is very short he's aerodynamic absolutely it's all of the science that hg yeah. wells loves just <laughs> in fluid motion running away from cgi <laughs> <tri -tops. laughs> 
Oh, but for all his accomplishments, he never made up with his old friend, a man who once said, you are, for me, the most interesting literary man of your generation. In fact, the only interesting one. So now, Farah, I have to ask you here, after hearing about this beef, whose side are you on? That's such a good question. You know, I feel like I can't take, this is a cop-out, but I don't know if I can take either side because both because of their pride and because of their stubbornness have just completely misunderstood what art is supposed to be, which is that it doesn't <gasps> have to be one or the either. So I, they're, they're both silly, silly geese. But if I had to pick. They're, they're goose goslings. They're exactly, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but if I had to pick, I would, I would choose James, which I, hurts my soul to say, but that's only because that, that little, the final letter that he had said, it was just, it's sad. It's a sad letter. He, he was hurting. It is sad, but I, I love your point there about how both of them are kind of wrong, you know, and they, they could have just maybe sat down and had a conversation before H.G. Uh, Wells decided to publish a whole book making fun of his old friend. Yeah, what about it's, you, Chris? It's, a choice. it's a choice to write each other angry letters and not actually talk about it. Yeah. But you, Chris, who's who's on who's on uh, what side are you on here? I think I lean a little bit Henry James here because I feel like H.G. Wells might have overreacted a little bit with an entire book making fun of somebody. And I was like, you could have just had a conversation and maybe hashed a few things out, discover some middle ground, maybe not hate each other. <laughs> um, and I, I feel like from the excerpts you've read, Henry at least tried to be nice about it mm -hmm. and like made an effort, whereas H.G. Wells was very, very stubborn. Yeah, no, I agree. I, I think I'm firmly on Henry James's side, even though that does kind of pain me because he's, you know, the wealthy, affluent clout chaser, <laughs> as, as we dug into oh, there. Um, broken clocks, right? I don't know. How many times a day? I don't remember. Five? Five times a day. Yeah, we'll go with that. <laughs> oh, goodness. Well, you know, to wrap up here, Barra, why don't you tell us a little bit about uh, what you're reading right now uh, and where people can find you? Uh, right now I'm reading, I decided to do something different. So I picked up Franz Fanon's uh, Wretched of the Earth, which has been great. And what else? What else you want to know? Well, where can we find you? Someone was oh. like, wow, Farrah's great. I want to pick up their books. <laughs> uh, I'm on TikTok. You can find me on TikTok. That's where I, where I go the most, I think. So at, at Farinaz Rishi is where you can find me. I have to say you are like exceptional at TikTok. I I I am blown away. Uh I see your videos sometimes float by in my Instagram, which like since you know I'm almost 41, that's how I see TikTok videos. And I am I am so impressed. Like you you really know how to do it. It's 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 hit or miss, but it's fun. It's a it's a, a circus over there. Ten out of ten, highly recommend. <laughs> Awesome. Well, hey, thank you for joining us for our first episode here. To anyone who's listening right now, we will be back uh, with a, another episode in two weeks. Yeah, thanks for listening and, and go take a sign.